0: at this point, you guys are probably wondering, when will we ever get another episode of the Sights to See and Places to Be in Appalachia? And it's totally fair if you have that question. Uh, I really thought that I would get a chance to publish another uh, episode of that series this past Friday. But with, you know, making the move up to Louisville uh, to start orientation for law school, uh, definitely not had as much time as I normally would have to to work on that. So I do apologize, but I know that you guys understand um, where I'm coming from on that, and I appreciate your understanding. I promise, I promise, it's not the end of that series. There there will be more episodes to come uh, of, of that show, of that series. Uh, just, you know, not so sure when. Uh, and while we're on the subject, um, you all may have seen this coming, but just to make it official, uh, I'm going to go ahead and call this the season finale for season five of the show. Um, you know, I... Realized the other day that I have published maybe more seasons than were warranted, given how I've just been doing this for two years now. Uh, But I do like to kind of cap things off when I realize that I'm going to take an extended break from the show, Uh, you know, when school ends and the summer vacation begins or over uh, winter break. And I... Think that this is a good place to cap off season five. I think this is episode eighteen or nineteen uh, of this of this season. I started publishing again towards the middle or the end of May, uh, and it's been it's been a good run. We've had great guests on the show. We've had a lot of good topics discussed on the show, and um, you know, with uh, orientation starting today, with the first week of classes being next week. You know, I just don't know when I'm going to have an opportunity to um, publish another episode, and I want to get started again as soon as I can, but just as I'm in this transitioning period in my life, you know, starting this next chapter of my life, uh, I think this is the appropriate time to um, cap off season five and... um, kind of take a bit of a, an extended break from from publishing and recording as I get used to being up here in Louisville, as I get used to school. And um, also, to be clear, this isn't the end of the show. We will be back for season six. Uh, I just don't know when. And, you know, it might be that I go from regularly publishing every Monday and Friday, we <laughs> will put an asterisk by it, publishing every Friday, Um, I I may transition from that to just publishing when I can. You know, I'm not sure um, what that will look like. Uh, But, um, you know, I think that this is a good time, again, to just take an extended break and get used to being at school and not having as many things on my plate as I would if I did try to keep to that publishing schedule. Um, But, you know, I just wanted to say that officially, but I also wanted to emphasize uh, this is definitely not the end of the show. I will be continuing with it. I just don't know how yet, but when I figure it out, you guys will be the very first to know. And uh, this is a good time as well, I think, to say thank you guys so much for all that you have done and are doing to support me in this show, whether you you know, just follow on social media, whether you listen every week, you know, if you know me in person and have just encouraged me about the show, um, it all means a lot. It really does. And, uh, you know, I'm just really thankful for the community and the, uh, the presence that has been uh, established through this space, through this podcast. Uh, I'm thankful for all the people I've gotten to meet and all the things I've learned. Uh, and, you know, it's a continuing process, too. It's still going on. And uh, for whenever we will be back, uh, I'm looking forward to it and I'm excited for it. And uh, I still am excited for all that's to come in, in being in this show. So thank you guys so much for that support again. I will still try to stay active on social media just with posting about different things, but also to let you guys know when the new season will start. Um, but, you know, it's still an ongoing journey. We're not finished yet, not by a long shot. Uh, and uh, so I, I just wanted to take those first few minutes to uh, thank you guys, to let you know about uh, how the show is going to look like from from here on out. and um, And again, to just thank you for all that you've done and are doing to support me. But like I said, I'm really excited for today's episode, our Season 5 finale. Um, you all may have seen me post on social media about uh, my trip to Hazard a few weeks ago. Uh, it, wonderful trip. Stopped by the Hazard Coffee Company, the Red Spotted Newt um, bookstore. Uh, big thanks to Mandy for for hosting this event that I went to, because she invited Matthew uh, Algio, who is an author and journalist, Uh, to the store to sign copies of his book, All This Marvelous Potential, Robert Kennedy's 1968 Tour of Appalachia. Uh, I first read that book at the start of the pandemic when I was uh, hunkered down and had a bunch of extra time on my hands. Uh, I've always been interested in the Kennedys. um, I've always been interested in Bobby Kennedy in particular. And, um, you know, that book is just a fascinating look at this small chapter in his life. But, you know, Matthew makes the point in our talk that oftentimes you can better understand these people who live very extraordinary lives and uh, do a lot of interesting things throughout their lives by looking at smaller episodes within their lives. And I think that's certainly true of uh, Bobby Kennedy when you look at his time in Appalachia. And uh, Matthew's book is just filled with uh, amazing narratives and uh, perspectives of the people who were here um who saw Bobby Kennedy, who talked to him, very good friend, mutual friend of ours, Steve Kaywood, former state representative and an attorney uh, in Bell County over from Harlan, a uh, wonderful human being. I'd love to have him on the show sometime, but he, he was an instrumental part in that trip. And uh, Matthew also talks to people who knew Bobby Kennedy from other settings, uh, his people who worked for him in the U.S. Senate in Washington, D.C., people he had met when he had visited other places in the United States, such as uh, Mississippi, Uh, there's just so many different strands that Matthew pulls together in this book to paint a picture of someone who I think was here on a mission. Now, there's been a lot said of Bobby's trip to Appalachia in that uh, even people in 68, right after he had left, were saying that he had just come here for uh, publicity, to get ready to run for president, that he really didn't care about what happened to the people here. And there are people nowadays who still believe that and, um, You know, I respect their opinion on it, but I look at it a little differently. Um, One thing that you can't escape in looking at Bobby Kennedy's life, well, two things. He came from immense privilege, very wealthy family, was educated at uh, very prestigious universities, um, and he worked very closely within the corridors of power in Washington, D.C. But you also can't escape that he was a very empathetic person especially, and Matthew makes this point as well, especially after uh, John F. Kennedy was assassinated, that really seemed to change Bobby Kennedy in a way that he now was able to relate to people who were suffering in a way that you might not expect that he could. And when you look at newsreel footage of him on his visit, talking to school kids um, in in one room schoolhouses in in eastern Kentucky, or speaking to malnourished children in the Mississippi Delta, uh, speaking to uh, there's a very famous speech that he gave uh, in Indianapolis when news had broke that Dr. Martin Luther King had been assassinated. You can't see him, hear him, or read his words. At least I can't without walking away with the sense that he really did care about people and wanted to do everything he could to make their lives better and wanted to use his position as attorney general as a senator as uh you know just a human being to advocate for people who did not have anybody else in their corner now of course i don't want to give the impression that people in Eastern Kentucky or people in the Mississippi Delta needed Robert Kennedy to stand up for them. Um, but he was a big help in more people paying attention to their, their plight. And I think that's important just as today, you know, people in Eastern Kentucky and uh, impoverished people across the country don't need uh, rich benefactors to, to help us. But when more people are able to commit to building empathy and Leading with compassion and building solidarity between people and among people. I think that that is the way that you lay the groundwork for real change that we need at a time when poverty, hunger, inequality, uh, just a vast discrepancy in the way that people live, whether you're rich or poor, you know, the difference in standard of living if you're rich or poor... The problems that we're facing Eastern Kentucky and we're facing the United States and a lot of the world in 1968, those problems haven't gone away. They've taken on new forms. And today, our mission should be the same as his, as, as I understood it to be, in that we still need to try to understand each other. We need to empathize with each other. We need to pay attention to the suffering in our country, and we need to commit to building community amongst one another, regardless of whatever superficial differences we may have, regardless of whether someone is telling us that we should hate and discriminate against that group. We need to reject that and instead seek to understand them, to understand their their troubles. And in so doing, I think we can see that what they're going through isn't so different from what we've gone through ourselves. The... Obstacles that working people of every color and of every background face are fundamentally the same. And if we reconcile with each other, if we say that we may be different somewhat on the outside, but in actuality we're in the same boat and the solutions that we need are the same uh, to move towards a more equal, a more just world, when we commit to that work, that's how we really start to change things and to make progress and to make things better. That, I think, is the whole point, or at least one of the reasons for Bobby Kennedy's visit to Appalachia in 1968. As you'll hear Matthew talk about, it was one of the um, goals of his in writing this book. And it should be our goal now to build empathy to understand each other, and to move towards solutions to our problems that establish justice for all people for all time. That's our mission today, as it will be for a long time, but if we keep moving forward, we'll get somewhere. A lot of the problems that faced Appalachian 68 are the same ones today, but that doesn't mean that we should give up, rather it means that we should keep going. That's what I'm going to try to do. I know that's what a lot of you guys are going to try to do. I know that's what a lot of people across the country are going to do for their own homes as well. And I think that that is, again, how we build a more just world. And I think that uh, a lot of those lessons and how we do that are perfectly learned from reading uh, Matthew's book. Again, it's called All This Marvelous Potential, Robert Kennedy's 1968 Tour of Appalachia. Uh, I'll be sure to include a link to Matthew's website in the show notes where you can learn more about him, about his other books. Again, a new one that just came out very recently. And um, look to where you can find that book as well. And uh, again, just want to thank you all for tuning in and listening this week. Um, You know, Season 6 will be here. Don't know when, but it will be, so just stay tuned. And again, thank you guys so much for all that you do to support the show and support me. I love and appreciate each and every one of you from the bottom of my heart. So for this last episode of Season 5, let's get into it. You know, when I started the show, I was thinking to myself, man, it would be great if I could have him on, but I'm will never be that big to to reach out to him to get him on the show. Uh but to for you to be here is a is a real honor for me. And I'm I'm really glad that we get a chance to talk.
1: Thank you. It's it's great to be here. It's a great podcast. I'm I'm uh proud to uh to be on it. Well I, I appreciate your saying that and uh I, I think that we'll have a really
0: good talk. So what got you started uh what piqued your interest in writing about this particular chapter in Bobby Kennedy's life. I know that, uh, you know, there's been uh, pages and pages and gallons of ink spilled on, on him and his family and his campaign and everything. But uh, as I understand it, your book is the first concerted look at uh, this, uh, these few days that he spent here in East Kentucky. And so I was curious, what prompted you to want to look into this and to write this
1: book? Uh, I really, I really think a good way to understand uh, historical figures is by looking at the small picture sometimes. And, you know, I did a book in uh, 2009 I believe it was about uh, Harry Truman's excellent adventure, which is about a road trip that Harry and Bess Truman took in 1953 after they left the white house. And it was really interesting to just take this couple of weeks of truman's life after he became pre- after he he left the presidency and just sort of use that to look at what his character was and what his personality was like and what kind of a, a husband was he and what was Bess like and what kind of a wife was she what kind of a driver was she um uh, was he actually she didn't drive <laughs> um so so i found that really really interesting you get these guys whose lives are so interesting compelling right. eventful Right, You know, that some of these smaller episodes, I think, get left by the wayside. And I think that was that was the way with Kennedy. I've always been interested in the Kennedys. I think uh, any American interested in politics has to be interested in the Kennedys. And I was always especially interested in Robert Kennedy. I was only two years old when he was assassinated, but our lives did overlap, and that always kind of meant something to me. And I knew he had done these so-called poverty tours, but I didn't know any of the details about them. Um, and, and when I found out that he had done this, this trip to Eastern Kentucky and then the election of Donald Trump in 2016 came along and all of a sudden everybody's going to Eastern Kentucky or an Appalachia to go to every diner and talk to everybody about what happened. And I recalled the fact that Robert Kennedy had gone to Eastern Kentucky, uh, in 68 and really had. Had campaigned as a uh, he wasn't hadn't officially announced his candidacy yes yet um one of my theories is that he was going to eastern kentucky to try to sort of test test drive his his campaign um, with working-class whites um and so i thought this was like a kind of a good peg um but i didn't really want to do the whole why did they vote for trump thing i just kind of wanted to look at this period in 1968 and what America was like then, and maybe look at what has changed and what hasn't changed since then. So that was kind of the slow evolution of the story. And then I began seeing, are there people around who still remember? And it was really cool because it's it's close enough in time that there are a lot of people uh, still alive who remember seeing Bobby Kennedy when he came to Eastern Kentucky in 1968. Some people had very uh, you know, intimate encounters with him. So uh, there clearly was a ton of material there, and then of course all the background material in Appalachia. I mean, you could pretty much pull into any town in Appalachia and write a book. Right. Uh, there's just so much history, so much drama, and, and so that uh, that's how the book that's how the book came about. And
0: uh, that kind of approach really does show through in your book. It it, it does indeed. And um, before we go any farther, um, you know, I wanted to to thank you as well because you know. Especially since, as you as you alluded to, when Trump was elected, there was a lot of uh, uh, feeling that uh, there needed to be a, 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 a project to understand these folks in Appalachia, right. and certain figures emerged with uh, some would say oversimplified, um, stereotypical narratives that you know a lot of people on both sides of the political aisle kind of bought into that mm. really papered over the the complexity and the nuance in the history of the region. And uh, your approach was. Uh, In my view, precisely the opposite. And, you know, speaking as somebody who is, you know, proud to be from this area and wants a uh, a real in-depth understanding of it uh, for everybody, whether they're from here or not, in, in just a way that we can all understand each other a little better. Um, this book, your book, I think is a great example of somebody who, like yourself who who isn't from here, but who came here with an understanding that uh, there's a lot of rich history, a lot of diversity here, which you highlight in the book very well, and a rich and complex history that you do mm-hmm. capture in a good way. So I, I really appreciate that. And I know that many others do as well. Thank I, you.
1: I, I, I think that, you know, the. I I have to give you know to some extent you have to give especially people who do you know broadcast media, um, you know it's impossible to distill some some issues down to two minutes and forty five seconds. It's just right. it's just impossible. It has to be superficial. The nature of the medium uh, makes it superficial. Um, but you know the whole hillbilly elegy thing. I think everybody went a little overboard on that um, and. I don't think there's anything, you know, I don't think it's any more appropriate for me to speak for the people of Appalachia than it is for JD Vance to speak for the people of Appalachia. Mm-hmm. Um I think everybody has their own voice and I think every voice if if they if they want to be heard uh should have a venue to be heard. So that was one of the things about the book I really liked was you know I met people who I would not ordinarily meet in the course of my day-to-day life. That's the, that's the neat thing about reporting and, and writing these stories is it, is it takes you out of the, you know, your normal, you know, your normal, uh, everyday life. And, um, just meeting some of the people and, 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 you know, just like, uh, Lawrence Baldridge, who was the, um, English professor at, uh, Alice Lloyd college, um, you know, Tommy Duff, who of course I didn't get to meet but got to got to know about. These were people doing God's work, man. I right. mean, these are people working hard to make not just their lives better, but their community's lives uh better and really deserve to be uh to be recognized. You know, it's the people doing the small parts that are making it all run. And uh, uh right. that was that was that was rewarding to me.
0: No, I'm sure. I'm sure. And, uh, I'm sure it was also rewarding getting to me, meet, uh, the great Steve and I yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> talking at the store, He's, uh, right. man,
1: that's some, that's somebody else you could write a book about just sitting right. and talking to him for a little bit. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's people live fascinating lives, right? And if you can get them to talk, um, you know, you'll, you'll learn a lot. Uh, that's part of the, part of the, you know, part of the job is getting people to talk. Right. And uh, it was a little harder with this book because you, you know, uh, Robert Kennedy went to visit some very poor families to see what their lives were like. Well, then you're calling their children or grandchildren to say, Oh, I'd like, I'd like to talk to you because you were so poor. Right. And Bobby Kennedy. came yeah. to talk to you. So you gotta be, you know, you, you, you gotta be, you know, a little, uh, nuanced and and uh, you know have some empathy as as you approach that but i really found people especially who had had any encounter who'd even just seen bobby kennedy from afar in whitesburg standing in front of the courthouse were were, were willing to talk without exception right uh and you know that kind
0: of um feeling and that that starting place of empathy is something that uh, kennedy himself exhibited in in his trip uh you know there's been um and i'm i'm sure that you encountered this too as you, you alluded to it uh, just a minute just a moment ago um there was some mixed receptions of what his tour was really about you know mm-hmm. not only today but even sure. when when he when he came and so um you know from my reading and my looking into it i i've come to believe that he really did come with a desire to just understand people, not trying to humiliate them because of their conditions, but rather shine a light on their conditions to show people in his constituency in New York, but also the people in the Senate that he was serving with to show them, like, look, listen, it's been four years since the war on poverty was declared here in this very state. Right. And look how much things have not really changed. And, right. you know, we've got to look at this seriously and offer a better a uh, kind of, uh, we've got to try to help these folks create a better standard of standard of living for themselves like they deserve. And, you know, that's how I read into it myself. And I'm curious, uh, if you came across, cause I know that you kind of, in the book, you highlight, you know, some people say that he was just looking for votes. Others say that he was really here with uh, good intentions. You, you show both, um, viewpoints. And so I'm curious if you yourself, uh, are persuaded by either of those uh, viewpoints on what his trip meant. You know, he went through, um, you know, a few different counties here in the Eastern part of the state, went to uh, a strip mine site, uh, went to uh, a, a couple uh, schoolhouses to talk to kids and uh, set up a, a, a hearing of the subcommittee on, on poverty and other things of which he was a, a member. And so uh, I'm curious, what what do you make of his trip in the grand totality of it and the, mm-hmm. the um, uh, purpose of it?
1: Um, I'm, I'm just looking at, at my own notes just to, uh, let listeners know the, the itinerary was basically Vortex, uh, which is near, uh, Hazard. Uh, I'm sorry. No, no, no. Vortex is farther North. Vortex Barwick, which is near Hazard. Um, then he went to Hazard. Uh, he went to Yellow Creek, which is where the mine was. He went to, uh, Alice Lloyd, gave a speech there, stayed overnight there. Then Whitesburg, Fleming Neon, uh, where the or Neon it was at the time where the uh, high school was that he held the um, the hearing, and then Preston, uh, yeah, Prestonsburg, uh, which is where he flew out of. Um, you know, I think he had empathy. There's no doubt about. It. He was very. Uh, he he was a very. Uh, I think the assassination of his his brother uh, really kind of changed his yes. his um, you know political philosophy. Maybe. I mean, he was a pretty. He was a pretty conservative guy. He worked in the, you know, the the Senate committee as a as an attorney before he was himself in the Senate. They were investigating unions and and uh, and uh, organized crime. And he was also uh, a counsel for McCarthy too. Joe right, McCarthy. he yeah. worked with Joe McCarthy uh, in in the fifties. So this was not a guy, and he was a you know from a rich rich family in in Boston. Not a guy who you would expect to be a bleeding heart liberal. Right, uh, but I think his political philosophy evolved i would say matured i'm sure other people would not use that word but i also think though it's you know there's no it's not a crime to use empathy as a political um tool right sure. um i think by expressing uh, empathy and showing sympathy for people um you you're you're also going to have a better chance of winning them over um and i think there was a practical aspect to this trip too i think one of the things I really admire about Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy as a senator is that um he actually got legislation passed. Right. <clears throat> you know, uh he he went on these trips with the hopes of finding solutions to problems and presenting uh solutions in the form of legislation. And I, I like to tell the story, you know. Of course, he 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 was assassinated uh April, May, June, three months after this trip. Um, but one of the things he found in eastern Kentucky that I think really surprised him whether he had known about it before or not I'm not sure the extent of it surprised him I think was the fact that people had to pay for food stamps right you know the food stamp program um was started as a as one of the war on poverty programs uh um in in 64 Uh, The Economic Opportunity Act. But as as a condition of receiving the food stamps, you had to fork over money. So if you were there was somebody that testified, Cliston Johnson was his name, I believe, and he had 13 kids and he talked about how he paid uh, $72 to get $94 in food stamps. So he had to come up with the $72 every month. To get the extra twenty-two dollars or twenty-four dollars, whatever it was, right? Um, and and this was a this was a burden on some people. Of course, there was a very complicated formula for determining what the cost was going to be, based on your means and how big your family was, and and that sort of thing. But that finally, uh, and I think really, uh, as a result of this trip uh that this trip was the impetus then to eliminate the requirement that people pay money it took until the 70s of course the way things move in in washington it wasn't until i think officially 1979 that uh, all, all recipients were not required to uh, not all recipients were required to to make the payment so i think he he came here you know i i think there were three reasons he came uh, as you mentioned before the Economic Opportunity Act, the War on Poverty Act, uh, had been had been in place for four years, and it was coming up for renewal. Right. It had been it had been written into the act that it had to be renewed after four years. Uh, so he wanted to see the effect of the programs that had been implemented implemented um, by the Economic Opportunity Act. Number two, I think there was a personal reason. Uh, President Kennedy, his brother, had originally been scheduled to visit uh, Eastern Kentucky in December of 1963 after he got back from Dallas. Right. And, and so I think this was a uh, personal, you know, uh, motivation for Robert Kennedy to make this trip that his brother had never been able to make. And the third reason I think was political, you know, I think he was running he was considering challenging Lyndon Johnson for the Democratic nomination for president in 1968. Uh as, as he would say, you know, I've got all the I've got all the downtroddens you know mexican americans uh um african americans native americans he, these were big constituencies that he had a lot of support in uh he wanted to see how he could do among white voters working class white voters in eastern kentucky that was sort of the the you know the 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 litmus test for him how can i how can i um compete um, it's interesting in sixty eight two. Who else was running uh, on the other side of the political spectrum was George Wallace, right? So right. you have, and he he also coveted these voters that uh, that Bobby Kennedy uh, was was you know test driving. Sure. And, sure. And, and so it's interesting, it's fascinating to me that these 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 two guys who are complete you know political antipodes are both C. You know the the value in in courting these these voters, so I think those were the reasons that that Kennedy went. I think he he had uh he, he was able to connect with people, he was especially able to connect with children. Right. Um. People who who had encounters with him who were children at the time told me about that. Just the way he would look at them, he would listen to them. Um, he went to the schoolhouse in Barwick and, and, uh, sat on, uh, you know, sat on the kids' desks and asked, would ask them what they'd had for breakfast and what they were going to have for lunch. Um, and so he enjoyed, I think he, he, he got a lot of energy from being around people anyway, as part of his personality. And I think, you know, a trip like this really, really kind of fed his soul like that. I think so too.
0: And, you know, in, uh, reading about his encounters with, you know, these folks who lived, uh, here and uh, you know it's worth mentioning also that he had a prior uh, exposure to rural yeah. poverty that uh, you know is often back then and today um, rural poverty in a way is invisible to a lot of folks in the way that um, poverty in other places is not just mm-hmm. because you know looking at a place like east kentucky as an example you know you have communities that are isolated compared to uh, you know uh, certain towns like mine, for instance, is more isolated than it is to Lexington. But mm-hmm. even within places like this, you have you know, people who are isolated within these pockets of isolation in a way that it would seem that nobody would ever know of their plight. But uh, you know he had had experiences seeing what that kind of isolation and what that kind of neglect could do to people, not just in you know, the West Virginia primary in 1960 that was pivotal for JFK to win the Democratic nomination, but uh, just a few months, I think, before his trip to East Kentucky, he went to uh, the Mississippi Delta area yeah. and saw similar conditions there, uh, uh, predominantly among uh, African-Americans. And so, as you alluded to a few moments ago… You know, he is at this point, I think, seeing all these strands between connecting communities that might not superficially have too much in common, you know, white working class voters, uh, uh, poor African-American voters uh, and working class voters in in Mississippi. Uh, And he's seeing that, you know, they're in the same boat. They need help. And, you know, he uh, after his Mississippi trip went back to the Senate, I believe, and, you know, was very adamant that, you know, we've got to get food assistance down there we've got to do something to help and you know as you said his trip here uh spawned the effort to eliminate the requirement to pay for food stamps it's it's amazing it's amazing that uh uh stuff like it's it's amazing that back then solutions actually emerged from the united states senate yeah yeah um but i, I, I think he 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 i'm sorry go ahead no, no no i was just gonna say that you know he had uh, this wasn't his first exposure to the kind of uh, rural poverty and the more uh, isolated pockets of poverty that weren't uh, as evident to him as a senator from New York, but also from his, you know, prestigious and and privileged background. And so he is in the process of building this kind of uh, solid solidarity with these folks that on the surface he doesn't have much in common but he understands that you know they need help the federal government is empowered to help them and has the resource to help them and it should help them and you know, i think that's a really uh, evident uh current that goes through his trip here and his his wider political
1: efforts around this time yeah and no, i i don't i i don't subscribe to conspiracy theories but you have to wonder uh how nervous people got when they saw Bobby Kennedy trying to bring together poor white people and poor black people sure. to unite in a common front uh to fight for fight for an agenda for themselves and uh that's precisely what he was trying trying to do at the time um I don't know that anybody really ever has uh, uh you know very successfully achieved that but he probably uh came as close and also uh also was explicit about it i don't think right. there was anything you know uh you know uh you know hidden about this there was no hidden agenda in this he just saw that this this was the way for uh people to improve their lives was by joining forces with other people who want to improve their lives um it's interesting you made the point about how people might not even want to you know people might not want help from the government they might you know um they might resent help from the government they might right. want not, you know, want to just be left alone. And, and I think that's entirely appropriate, but I also think that we should know, um, what the conditions are in our country. Right. You know, I think we, we, you know, owe it to ourselves and to our communities to understand what's happening in, in, you know, really in every nook and cranny. And if, uh, if, if people don't, don't want help, I you know, there's nothing you could do about that. And, uh, and uh but i I don't think that should um stop us from understanding what other people's lives are like. That's
0: no absolutely. and uh, you know that is something that um Bobby Kennedy and himself exhibited not just within the United States but beyond as well. there's uh you know in I was uh rereading your book in in preparing for this, and uh his visit to the the strip mine in Yellow Creek reminded me of a uh, similar instance where he's touring in South America. I think it might've been Chile. And he actually went into the mine where these folks were working and saw the conditions and uh, the unsafe nature of the work they were doing. And when he came out of the the mine, uh, you know, he said, you know, if I were down there with them, I'd be a communist too. You know, right. there's, uh, you know, earlier in his life, uh, especially with his helping with the McCarthy hearings on the, the, kind of red scare the second red scare mm-hmm. uh, you know, he like many other politicians on both sides of the aisle kind of bought into this whole uh, paranoia about the spread of communism and so for him to go from that working for right. joe mccarthy to empathizing with folks who were uh you know working in these conditions that he himself you know would not have known otherwise and saying, yeah, I, I see where they're coming from. I would want to be a communist too, if I were yeah. working in that kind of condition. <laughs> yeah. I think that's just one um, example of not only his personal empathy and desire to understand other people, but the real benefit to that. Like you were saying, you know, when you can see what other people are going through and see how desperate their conditions are and see also that their lot in life is not too dissimilar from this other group of people that in some ways, in some circumstances, they've been told to hate and discriminate against and are discriminating against when you can try to bridge that gap and reconcile them, you can achieve a kind of transformation that helps everybody raise their standard of living to the condition that it needs to be. And, you know, that was a big theme of what that campaign turned out to be was reconciling those people that had been divided and trying to bring them together to push for a better kind of existence for themselves and
1: for their families. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think Kennedy, the the mine mine example is a good example, the strip mine example and the South America mine example, because I think he really um, liked to traffic in traffic in concrete um, um, research. You know, right. he didn't he didn't really deal in abstractions. I mean, he could deal in abstractions, but I think he really liked to go see right what 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 things were like. Um, and he, he did a lot of, you know, you mentioned the Mississippi tour he had done in, uh, in, uh, um, I think it was the previous year. Um, and, and so it, it was sort of an example of his, I mean, he had general curiosity. I think I, I look at some members of Congress and, and United States senators today and, um, and it, it's on both parties, but I just think, wow, are they even curious? Like, just as it, do they think about stuff, you know? Right. Uh, it, it all just seems so calculated for the next the next election every time, sure. and I mean you know things were not great in '68, of course. It's, let's not get you know wistful about this, but there are occasionally examples of leaders who come along, and um, it, it, you know, display these these very good traits in a politician. I think without not, you know without uh, abandoning the the notion that they are a politician he's not pretending to be anything um you know uh su- you know superior to the United States Senate he's just you know he's he's on the committee uh the Senate committee on poverty so he wants to go see what poverty is like and right. and that that's what he did you know I, the the hearing at Fleming uh, Neon High School i think it was Fleming Neon High School at the time um was just such an interesting thing to research because you just couldn't imagine it today it was really so i don't know simple they put right. up a put up a, a big you know a, a like a card table in the in the in the, the gym lane right in the gym, yeah, gymnasium yeah. in the gymnasium right right under the basket and you know he he just sat there and and people came and uh and testified some people of course you know he had an advanced guy Peter Edelman, who came down and, and tried to find, you know, people who were willing to talk, and usually people who had some sort of, you know, association with an anti-poverty group or another. But then you had people like Tommy Duff, who we mentioned right. earlier, the high school student, who came and testified, who was outside protesting. And Kennedy invited him inside to uh to testify. So, uh, you know, it was just it it was an interesting, it was an interesting exercise all the way around this trip. It really, and that's what I was saying kind of at the beginning that just take these two days in Robert Kennedy's life and you can learn a lot. Right. (laughs) You could spend your life really examining these two days and the issues and the people and the places, um, that were all involved in this trip. So it's, it's, I I just, it, it was a really cool way to get into it. And I hadn't, I did not know a lot about Robert Kennedy, uh, going into it. And sometimes you go into these and, and, uh, you don't always have a better opinion of the person that you're writing about than when you sure. began. But uh, I definitely had a better opinion of, of Robert Kennedy after this. And, you know, of course he's, he's assassinated months later. right?
0: Um, so we'll never know. I think that's a good place to bring in this aspect of the conversation in that, you know, so much of what he saw in, in his trip here, you know, a lack of jobs, high cost of living um, and, A lot of folks not really with the means to keep up with that cost of living, you know, just debilitating uh, poverty and a a kind of uh, frustration with the socioeconomic classes that were existing at the time. And he encountered all of that, you know, 50 plus years ago. And, you know, it's uh, like you mentioned at the top, you know, it's it's. One one thing that you wanted to do in in writing this book is seeing and how things have changed or not so much in the in the time since his visit and uh, you know it, it's it's evident that a lot of what uh, these folks were encountering really hasn't changed uh, for the better that much you know and uh, you know like the contest between Kennedy's campaign and Wallace's campaign in '68 I think is a good uh, uh, lead up to the kind of You know regional politics that's often played you know we've got the culture wars nowadays where you know the real substance of issues of poverty and wages and jobs and 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 a good standard of living are kind of pushed to the side in favor of issues that are engineered some would say to be divisive. And so, uh, you know, there's a lot that can be done nowadays to uh, examine his trip and seeing all that uh, he encountered and recognizing that it's not too different than it was then.
1: Yeah, he um you know, I think politicians are inclined to try to find a way to not talk about the problems. Right. And Kennedy was inclined to talk about the problems. And I think that is, uh, you know, it's, it, we still need that. Yes. We still need to talk about the problems. Um, and I think it we need more people in, in leadership positions to talk about the problems. Um, it was interesting the... The war on poverty in general, you know, um, poverty was 22% in 1959, and in 1973, when you get into Nixon's second term and it basically is winding down, the war on poverty, it was 11%. So some ways, you know, we cut poverty in half right, in, in 14 years. right. I mean, people say the war on poverty failed. Well, if we had kept, who knows? Sure. Who knows? And, you know, I love the irony of Nixon coming in and who does he put in charge of basically ending the war on poverty? It's Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney. Rumsfeld and Cheney, their first big assignment is stop the war on poverty. So um, I, I think, you know, it's 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 hard to say. Obviously, what would have happened if, you know, Kennedy wins? We keep the war in poverty. Are you ever going to get poverty to zero? No, not going to. But clearly it was headed in the right direction. The other thing that was interesting about the Economic Opportunity Act is that the federal government gave grants directly to local organizations, right. like the Appalachian Volunteers. And this really alienated state and local politicians who were used to the money going through them. Right. And they could use it as kind of a patronage thing. Right. Right. So it, t- it took the it it it, it 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 took the purse strings, you know, it took their purse away. Right. Um, and that was one of the things that when Kennedy came here, I think he 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 admired these groups. Um, and, you know, the the Appalachian volunteers started as a basically high school or a college kids from Kentucky going to paint schoolhouses in the summer. And then evolved into a pretty sophisticated organization all because of this money they got a million dollars i mean it's a lot of money right you know, in, in 1966 or whatever it was and so i i think that you know it really the war on poverty um you know reduced poverty and also showed us pretty glaring examples of why we'll never get rid of poverty you know um The way the the bureaucracy and politics are aligned uh makes it very very difficult in this system to do it again because you don't have as many people as kennedy who are willing to talk about the problem what can we do to solve it um i i also in the book i talk about how the um uh the way we set the poverty line right Right, was you know this was basically invented out of thin air by uh, uh, Orshinsky, I think was the woman's name, who right. was at the National Labor Department to statistics or something. And Kennedy said, "Well, we need to know how many people are in poverty. Come up with a formula." And so she goes, finds out how much food costs to feed a family of four, and how much it costs to rent. Da da Oh, here right. it is. You need, you know, whatever. So they've adjusted that for you know inflation through the years, but they never really changed the the formula and at the time um food was very expensive and housing was cheap right and now of course housing is ridiculously expensive and food is very cheap but if you change the formula suddenly politicians will find that that you you're going to have 10 million more poor people right there's a, there's a west wing episode where this is a great uh subplot and this yeah very issue <laughs> yeah i'll have to find it because i just i just love the idea of it somehow changes their lives if they're if we call them poor right right it's like materially how will that affect and then they they have formulas now where you can be eligible for programs if you're at 150% of the poverty line, right which is just another way to raise the poverty line without raising the poverty line so we could say not as many people are in poverty anyway it's it's a very complicated system that we have here and it's often very very difficult uh to to make you know, substantive, uh, you know, meaningful changes. And I think Kennedy really liked the idea. Like I said, he liked legislation. He wanted to, let's like, okay, let's try this. And I think it was a period in American history where we were willing to try things. Right. And, um, and so he was, you know, kind of at the right time and place in a way. And I don't know that, you know, it'd be so hard to get enough votes to try anything, you know? yeah so it's changed and it hasn't changed right and you know the um certainly
0: folks could make the case for a lot of different ways forward in terms of where we go from here and in, in uh, actually addressing the poverty and the issues that create the poverty uh and you know as you as you put it one of the most important things that we have to do is, for one, talk about the issues concretely, and we have to be willing to try different solutions to to try to help people achieve a better standard of living. And you know, at the heart of it, I think that that's one of the most important lessons that you can take away from looking at Kennedy's uh, trip here and also from reading your book. Uh, Matthew, thank you so much for your time today. It has been great talking to you. Uh, you're welcome to get on the show anytime that you'd like to be, and I'd love to give you these last few minutes to say anything you'd like to uh, round out our discussion. Anything you'd like to leave listeners with uh, in terms of you know where they can find more of your work and where they can get your book and anything like that.
1: Go right ahead. The floor is yours. And again, thank you so much. Thank you, uh, TJ. It's it's really been it's been interesting. I was going to say entertaining, but I I don't know if. <laughs> If it's entertaining, it's a bit depressing. <laughs> um, I, I guess I would say, uh, well, I have a website, malgeo.net, but um I'm reading right now about um the early years of the FDR presidency. And I see I see now, I wish I'd read about this before I wrote the Kennedy book, because I see so many parallels with the war on poverty and the early, uh, you know, anti-poverty programs of the, uh, you know, of the, of the thirties, but Absolutely. the CCC, it works project administration. And, and what you said about, you have to try things. And it was a great period for even FDR was like, it might not work, but, you but know let's try, we, it. We gotta yeah. try it. We got to try it. We got to try it. And, you know, we need to get this done. We need the first, we need a million people in the, in the CCC by the end of, you know, April, it's like, oh, that's six weeks away again. Why well, you got to try yeah. Let's try to do it. Let's try to do it. Let's try to get people at the camps. We can give them food. They could do a little work. So the whole concept of of having a a mindset, um, you know, a, a, a national, you know, a kind of a consensus that we need to try something that does come around. You know, it's been around before and it hopefully will come around again. I think we're kind of in the, you know, in the in the valley on the on the graph right now. Um but I like to think that we'll we'll get, get to a place again where we're really all of us just agree there's a problem, whatever the problem is, and agree that we need to try to do something to fix it. Going in a whole different direction. I know we only have a minute here, but like with guns, I mean, eventually we have to, you know, it takes a while to get everybody to agree there's a problem. It takes a long time. I mean, look at the Depression. Right. People, you know, finally, like when half the country like literally is unemployed, then finally people were like, even businesses were like, well, we need the president to do something. To do something, right. Right. So so hopefully it'll come around again. But uh, 1968 was an interesting year. No, it certainly was. And
0: there's a lot of lessons to be learned from it. And some of the most important, I think, can be uh, well learned from reading your book. Uh, it's one of my favorites that I recommend to a lot of people. And I, uh, it's been great getting a chance to talk to you about it. Thank you, TJ. I enjoyed it. Thank you, Matthew. Well, thank you guys so much for listening again this week. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. And thank you as well for all that you do to support the podcast, whether you listen, follow on social media, give an encouraging word, whatever you do and however you do it to support the podcast. Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate each and every one of you. Be sure to join us again next time for another episode of Appalachian Firesides. And don't forget to rate and review the podcast on whatever platform that you listen on. Give me your thoughts on what you'd like, what you would change, how I could do better. Just let me know what you think. I'd love to hear your all's thoughts. If you like that background music that you're listening to, that is a piece called In the Sweet By and By by a great artist named Zachariah Hickman. Be sure to check them out on YouTube. And don't forget to follow the podcast on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to stay up to date on all that's going on. I hope that you'll join us next time for another episode of Appalachian Firesides. But until then, be well, love your neighbor, and do good things. Catch you guys next time.